More bloodshed in Syria as the government shells the city of Homs. How do you solve a problem like Iran? We ask a foreign office minister. What Iran needs to do is be willing to be open about its nuclear program and to take the action it needs to reassure the world community that it's peaceful. That is how this situation will come to an end. And the MOD announces its intention to buy sea tankers from South Korea. Hello, it's Glenn Mance. Welcome along to another edition of SITREP. UN investigators say the killing of women and children in Syria is being carried out under orders from the highest levels of the army and government. They've compiled evidence detailing the shelling of residential areas and the torture of wounded protesters in hospital. Yesterday, the Sunday Times correspondent Marie Colvin and French photojournalist Remy Ocklick died when a civilian area was shelled in the city of Homs. Stuart Ramsey is Sky News' chief correspondent who recently reported from Homs. He joins us now from Dubai. Welcome to SITREP, Stuart. I understand you were with her, Marie, that is, and one of the last people to see her before she went into Syria. Uh, that's right. We had dinner, I think it's uh, Friday week, um, just before she crossed to go in. I'd just come out. And um, as is often the case with these with the, the, these sort of things that you meet up. I've known Mary for a very long time. She knew I was in Beirut and rang me and, um, and we met for dinner. And we had a very long chat about, um, we were probably together for about four or five hours, going through maps, going through plans, what the type of stories we could cover or she could cover what she wanted to achieve. And we talked a lot about security and we talked a lot about the dangers inside, um, not least because I had left because the network that were looking after me couldn't look after me anymore. Um, we were surrounded at one point by the Syrian military about 500 metres away from where we were, and we basically escaped. And she asked me whether I would go back in again. I said, absolutely. And she asked whether she should, and I said, absolutely, because things change, information changes, and facts on the ground change constantly. So, uh, we, as I say, we, I gave her the best security brief I could give, and um, and she went back in. And reported very successfully um, uh, last Sunday Times. There's a fantastic piece, as Mary always writes, um, of the story she wanted to do, which was to reflect the problems faced by the ordinary people, as you pointed out in your link into into this, uh, civilians being uh, targeted or at least caught up in, in, a, in a barrage that is indiscriminate, of which housing estates are being hit, uh, not military installations or military encampments and that was the story that she she went to do she went back um into homs to actually have another look at the free syrian army and um in going back in she she died i mean Stuart, that that really is what it's all about here i mean this bringing everything into focus for ordinary people living there these 300 people uh, stuck there at the moment with no food no protection what did you think when you read the article um, I, I, well, it, it is. It, it, it reflected what I'd seen and 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 and, and the people that I knew, and it, it was a, a, a graphic illustration of, of of just how desperate it is for people who are living under this indiscriminate barrage and an absolute determination by a government, by one man actually, Bashar al-Assad, to kill all the opposition, just as his father did 
30 years ago is in Hammer. He's following the game plan and he's doing the same thing. And do you think her death will help highlight the plight of those people there? And will it bring international pressure to bear on the Syrian government? It certainly helps in terms of uh, that the profile that it reaches when someone of that you know, well-known and important writer who's listened to. But it doesn't necessarily mean it will change an awful lot when Russia, China, Iran refuse to take away their position that um, there must be non-interference in the outside world. Will it change much? Well, it take, it's going to take a massive step from the international community to actually step up to the plate and do something about it. And there's nothing at this stage to indicate to me that they're going to. And so, no, I think, I think while everyone will be outraged, um, I think that the killing, well, I know the killing's carrying on today because I've been talking to Homs today. Our defence analyst... Barrage continues. Sorry, Stuart. Our defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me in, in the studio. Stuart, uh, Christopher, the, the International Committee of the Red Cross has called for a daily two-hour ceasefire so that civilians can leave, the injured can be treated and supplies can be taken. Uh, apparently Russia has backed this. Does this mean that the Russians now might be changing their stance? Well, the Russians have got nothing to lose, have they? I mean, the important thing is uh, the Russians haven't changed their stance on the most important part, and that is their role within the Security Council. If there is to be... Something other than the normal diplomatic, uh, the commercial sanctions that are going on at the moment, i.e. a move towards a physical entry into Syria, which at this time there is no sign of whatsoever, uh, then the Russians would have to change their position on the Security Council. That's not going to happen. Uh, as uh, the Foreign Secretary, um, uh, Haig, said uh, in London, listen... Uh, Unless there is a Security Council resolution for this, a UN resolution, no one is going anywhere. Stuart, just to finish off, and bearing in mind the Friends of Syria conference tomorrow in Tunis, what do you think this, uh, this situation is heading now? Where, which way is it going? Well, Chris, as I said, you're right. Uh, the, the, the Russians don't appear to be changing their position, and uh, under those circumstances, absolutely nothing changes whatsoever, unless the Arab League and Turkey and perhaps European powers can make a big jump forward. But it's very difficult for them to do it. It's not like Libya. And therefore, I have to say, the only conclusion I, I, I can see at the moment is that uh, Bashar al-Assad will continue to try to annihilate the opposition. And that includes everyone and anyone who's in places like Baba Hamra, but also must remember not the other areas of Homs and Idlib, Aleppo, Era, Hama are being attacked all the time. I can't see it stopping. Stuart Ramsey, Chief Correspondent for Sky News, thanks for joining us. Still to come, a survey of people living in Helmand province shows their fears about corruption and why the MOD has turned to South Korean shipbuilders. David Cameron has welcomed leaders from around the world to London to discuss the threat of piracy, extremism and terrorism in Somalia. The United Nations Chief Ban Ki-moon and US Secretary of State Hillary Clinton are at the one-day talks along with the Somali Prime Minister and representatives of around 50 other countries and also aid groups. Here's the Prime Minister addressing the start of the meeting. We are not here to impose solutions on a country from afar, nor are we here to tell you, the Somali people, what to do. But we are here to help get behind you, to get behind your efforts to turn things around. Chris Lee, why is Britain hosting this conference? Um, it agreed to 
some time ago that if we were going to do anything at all, if the United Kingdom was going to have make a contribution, was to pull everybody together who who might be able to agree for something to be done. The other thing to remember, in the United Kingdom, there are something like 200,000 Somalis living in the United Kingdom. And that concentrates some of the lobby group's minds uh, uh, on an occasion like this. It's also got to the point... Um, where, for example, the uh, Kenyans have sent in a force uh, into Somalia, have started to, or did start to take territory, but because there's nothing there in Somalia in terms of government, organization, security, etc., they turn around and say, well, now who's going to come and look after the bits that we've got? And this is a country where you call something a town because it's got, I mean, not being a pejorative, but it's got, you know, five... Uh, mud huts. And as far as the Kenyans are concerned, we're just taking this particular town. And so it needs a big international effort. And given the history of people trying to make international efforts, after all, they're fighting. A lot of them are fighting with the weapons that the Americans gave them to fight uh, at the end of the Cold War. But the main issue for Britain is, with regards to Somalia, is the piracy, isn't it? It is a big problem, and it remains a big problem. And it's, you see, last year, the world economy went down something like 7 billion US dollars because of that piracy. And you can't do anything about the piracy, or you can do something such as shooting up a few pirate cutters, but you can't do anything properly about the piracy unless you've sorted out what's ashore. And it's what's ashore that's actually running the things, uh, or partly running things, because actually a lot of this piracy is run from the Gulf states, allies of ours, of course. No, you've got to sort that shore-side part of piracy art, and the only way you can do that is with an international agreement. And so when you see the sort of the line-up here, you know, Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary-General, uh, Hillary Clinton, US Secretary of State, when you get that sort of line-up, you expect something to come out of it rather than just sweet words. Thank you, Christopher. Now to Iran, and this week the UN's nuclear watchdog's latest mission to the country has ended in failure. The team from the International Atomic Energy Agency has left Tehran, saying that despite intensive efforts, no progress has been made. The Iranian authorities refused a request to inspect a site where nuclear testing is suspected to have been carried out. BFBS's reporter Chris Whitehead spoke to Foreign Office Minister Alistair Burt and asked him about British policy on Iran and also about our relations with Pakistan. He began by asking him what he thought of this week's vote by MPs to rule out the use of force against Iran. I think the view of the House yesterday was that they didn't want to bind the hands of the government. Uh, When the government says in relation to the crisis in Iran, all options are on the table, uh, A, we've got to mean it, and B, everybody else has got to believe uh, we've got to mean it, and we do. Uh, We've made very clear that we see the solution to the, uh, the, the crisis as being through negotiation and diplomacy. Iran has been offered every opportunity and is continuing to be offered every opportunity to come to the table to talk about its nuclear programme to the nuclear powers and the European Union acting on behalf of of others. That's what we want to see happen. The sanctions are designed to encourage and pressure uh, Iran to do that. But um, because of the um, risk of Iran being nuclear capable, the risk of proliferation in one of the most volatile areas of the world, Uh, we have to be very clear that this is not an option we wish Iran to have. And we need to be very clear uh, that it it will not happen. Can I ask you, under what circumstances can you imagine us using force against Iran? How bad would things have to be? No, you can't, because, uh, again, I think it's part of the 
part of the process for us not to go into detail. It's sufficient, I think, for Iran to be aware that we want to negotiate. Uh, they are in breach of six United Nations resolutions. They're in a situation where the International Atomic a- Energy Agency has raised concerns about the nuclear program and possible military dimension. We have all the evidence we need. Uh, what Iran needs to do is be willing to be open about its nuclear program and to take the action it needs to reassure the world community that it's peaceful. That is how this situation will come to an end. We do not want it to come to an end in any other way. And do you think that uh, Iran really is willing to engage with the international community? Well, uh, they were pressed into having negotiations in December 2010. We think by the beginning of sanctions uh, starting to bite, uh, now they have responded to a letter of October last year from Cathy Ashton, the European High Representative. Uh, They've responded to this just in the past few days, uh, suggesting it's time for a time and venue. I'm quite sure we're looking at that very carefully because we do think the sanctions are biting and we do think uh, that anyone sensible would want to explore a a way to end this particular crisis without resort to anything drastic. If I can move on to, to Pakistan, there's been a lot of tension, of course, in recent months. How are relations generally between Britain and Pakistan at the moment? Relations are good between ourselves and Pakistan. Um, We have a, a, obviously, a long historical relationship between us. Uh, That's brought into very current focus with the one million people of Pakistan origin who now live in the United Kingdom, one and a half million journeys between us um, each year, and uh, a a proposal to take our trade in services and goods up to about two and a half billion pounds by 2015. So it's a living relationship in terms of security and defence, Uh, Pakistan is crucial to the future of Afghanistan where so many of our service personnel are engaged um, and we maintain the most constructive relationship with them their security is bound up with Afghanistan's security and regional security so we are partners in all these matters If we just cast our mind back uh, just a few weeks in fact we saw secret documents suggesting insurgents in Afghanistan are getting a great deal of support from Pakistan can we stop that actually happening again in the future? I think Pakistan, the Pakistan government is, is well aware of the difficulties of dealing with terrorism and insurgency. Remember, Pakistan have lost maybe 30,000 people themselves to terrorism in recent years. Um, so we've got to be uh, very clear that this is not something that is simply exported. This is a, a present danger to Pakistan itself. Uh, so it does wish to work with its partners, not only to stop it uh, going over the borders into Afghanistan, but also to prevent terrorism within its own boundaries. Foreign Officer Minister Alistair Burt talking to our reporter Chris Whitehead. Chris Lee, a Foreign Office Minister talking there about Britain's relationship with two other countries. We've already spoken about Syria and Somalia, and the Foreign Secretary, William Hague, seems to be on a, a never-ending overseas tour. Is it busier than normal? No, not really. You see, what happens with the Foreign uh, Secretary nowadays, if you look at the meetings he has to go to, and this is almost every week there's an overseas trip, You've got foreign ministers meeting on, uh, of, of the European Union. You've got the G8, the G20, United Nations, the NATO foreign ministers meeting, the regional bilaterals. And so they're on the move all the time. Now, this is another reason why I think it's quite fascinating that, the, that foreign secretaries do this foreign job all the time, moving from country to country, meeting to meeting. They never get a political base in the House of Commons. And one of the consequences of that... You'll never get foreign ministers, except for one, that was Jim Callaghan, moving on to number 10 because they, they're not in the tea rooms enough. They're in the, 
they're in these sort of uh, coffee stalls of the Grand Place instead. So what's going on? I mean, is, it, is this government actually taking more interest in foreign policy than the last? Well, I think it's not taking more interest, but I think it, to some extent there are bigger issues. But you see, the last government, I mean, you know, two Gulf Wars, not bad, was it? Um, or... Uh, Afghanistan, that's not bad uh, to go in there. But what we're finding out now is a complete change. We are experiencing something which we have never before experienced in the so-called Western world, of which we like to think we sit at the top table. We're seeing the inability of the so-called superpowers, which we like to think we're, we're tacked onto, being able to sort something. Syria is a very good example of this. North Korea was with its nuclear weapons. Iran is with its nuclear weapons. And for all our powers, for all these journeys, for all our contacts, etc., there's very little in practice that we can do about it. BFBS. Two NATO soldiers have been shot dead in eastern Afghanistan, apparently during protest against the alleged burning of the Quran at Bagram Air Base. ISAF says someone wearing an Afghan army uniform turned his gun on NATO troops and that a demonstration was happening nearby at the time. For the third day in a row now, anti-American protests are being staged by people angry at the desecration of the Islamic holy book. Let's speak to our Afghanistan reporter, James Hurst, in Camp Bastion. James, there doesn't seem to be any signs that these protests are dying down, does there? No, there really doesn't seem to be any sign of it dying down at the moment. Today, it seems to have spread geographically. Potentially, some of the violence may have been worse as well. It is, at the moment, though, still centred to the sort of northeast of this country. At least seven provinces have seen protests today, and that includes Nangarhar, where those two NATO troops were shot dead. The picture that appears to have emerged there is that two protesters who were trying to storm this joint ANA American base were shot dead as they were repelled from their attack. It appears that an Afghan soldier then sided with the demonstrate and turned his gun on NATO troops. There's not been official confirmation of that, but that's what the eyewitness reports are suggesting. The nationalities of these two troops have not yet been released, but uh, the MOD has told us that they are not believed to be British. But this came just a few hours after the Taliban as well released a statement urging Afghans to attack international military bases, convoys and personnel. There was already anger in Afghanistan about this apparent burning of the Quran at Bagram Air Base uh, and the insurgents seem to be trying to make capital and stoke up that anger. It's claimed, as you say, that uh, Bagram, that's where the burning is alleged to have taken place. Uh, I mean, you're quite some distance away in Helmand. Have there been any protests there? So far, there has been no sign, no report that I can see in the Task Force Helmand area, the central population belt of Helmand. Uh, Interestingly, I was told that when the provincial chief of police held his weekly news conference this morning, he didn't even mention it, and none of the journalists asked about it. But, you know, that doesn't mean that um, there aren't maybe some people here who are equally angry about it. Uh, The only word we will get from... British military, uh, particularly in relation to that um, urging of the Taliban for attacks, is that security is always under review. It can be amended as and when. Uh, There is, though, clearly concern from the Afghan government that this could spread yet further. Tomorrow is going to be quite a crucial day because it's Friday Prayers Day and the tone of those could be all important. There are emergency talks with tribal leaders taking place 
in Kabul. Uh, and America seems in the last few hours to have tried again to try and quell this. There has been a, an apology from President Obama sent in a letter to Hamid Karzai. That's on top of the in-person apology by the Deputy Defence Secretary and the fulsome apology from the Commander of ISAF on Tuesday when this news first broke. Christopher, as, as James has just said there, an American commander of NATO forces in Afghanistan apologises, but how much damage is the incident likely to have done? It does, does damage in two ways, or three ways, actually. Um, one, it gives Taliban an opportunity. Um, secondly, it does actually offend uh, it, people in a fiercely religious country. And the third thing, it, it ignores the basic rules about how you get rid of a copy of the Quran, which American soldiers, British soldiers, everybody should understand. There are only three ways of doing it. You can either bury it, you can set fire to it, but if you do, you have to scatter the ashes on water, or you can sink it. And this is the sort of thing, if it had been a formal declaration, we have these books, hand them over to a holy man, or we are going to give, if you like, these copies, formal burial, in water. Water is very important. That's such a simple thing to have done, and it would have got enormous respect. Failure. Thanks, Christopher. Now, staying with Afghanistan, a new survey of people living in Helmand province seems to show increasing satisfaction with the way they are governed, except in one key area. Most Helmandis think corruption is getting worse, not better. Let's go back to James Hurst in Camp Bastion. James, can you explain a little bit more about this study and what it found? Well, it's called the Helmand Monitoring and Evaluation Programme. It's a detailed study of people's perceptions here, and its findings are being used by the Provincial Reconstruction Team to help plan the piece-by-piece handover uh, to Afghan control. For that handover to happen, security is seen as the best indicator, and this survey found in almost every district opinions of security are either already high or they have been improving, along with opinions of freedom of movement. You look at things like education, health, the economy, the quality of life things. Again, opinions of those all seem to be getting better. But corruption and the fact that people think it's getting worse, that is seen as a threat to the progress that the rest of the survey shows. Uh, And the biggest concerns about corruption are national government. As you get more local, the trust does gradually improve. And that relies heavily on the police. How are they seen? Well, they're doing actually okay. This report says the positives for them outweigh the negatives, but broad perception is still that there is misconduct. Now, Helmand has a new police chief. He's been in the job uh, a few months, and the provincial reconstruction team have a lot of faith that he is committed to tackling corruption, both inside and outside his force, and I've been talking to him about that. In his office in Lashkagar, Helman's new chief of police is surrounded by cameras, microphones and journalists. This weekly news conference is part of a new regime by General Abdul Nabi Alam to reach out to locals. I want to build a bridge between civilians and police to bring strong relations so that they should trust each other and achieve their goal. A 13-year-old boy accused of possessing explosives given to him by the Taliban is brought in, shown to the cameras and questioned by the reporters. Unconventional by Western standards, but the aim is clear, to show that the Afghan National Police in Helmand are working for the people. At the end of the session, General Elam appeals for anyone suspecting corruption to report it and promises it will be investigated. For the provincial reconstruction team here, it's a vital message. Ivan Nielsen is acting head of mission. Perception polls conclude quite clearly that corruption constitutes possibly the biggest problem still. It's a major concern for both the government, the individual Afghan 
men and women and international community. The PRT is also working with the Helmand Governor to develop local radio and TV because they're seen as a key way of exposing corruption through investigative journalism. Last year, the mayor of Lashkar was forced out of office by public pressure after an expose accused him of corruption, even though he was not charged. Hezbollah Kamush, a reporter with Shamsha TV, says journalists here are showing what's really happening in Afghanistan. When something happens in Afghanistan, the government sends someone out to investigate. We follow this up and find out the truth, and then tell the people what's really happened. We have a very important role here. But it falls to the police to investigate and, if necessary, arrest corrupt officials. And that means rooting out any corruption in the force itself is an absolute key piece. In just one initiative, officers are being given MP3 players loaded with music, poetry and policing lessons, interwoven with anti-corruption messages. It reflects their commander's apparent commitment. Our police have to know about the constitution and about the government systems. It's a crime. A person who gives a bribe or a person taking a bribe, both of them are committing a crime. Now, Glenn, General Elam is clearly a strong personality and the fight against corruption seems so personality dependent. The real issue, though, remains confidence in national government. And that is not something that can be tackled in Helmand alone. Thank you, James. James Hurst in Camp Bastion. The MOD is to buy four new ocean-going tankers from South Korea. Daewoo Shipbuilding has been named preferred bidder for a £452 million contract to replace ageing Royal Fleet auxiliaries. Earlier I spoke to BFBS reporter Will Inglis, who's been following the story. I asked him to explain why the contract had gone to the other side of the world. Well, Glenn, simply put, no British firms bid for this work, and this was considered the best value. Now, the Royal Fleet Auxiliary desperately needs new tankers to replace the likes of Gold Rover. That ship is technically banned from many of the world's ports because it only has a single hull. International maritime standards now are for all tankers to be double-hulled. That minimises the risk of pollution if they scrape along something. Hasn't that been the case for some time, though? Well, yes, it has, actually, and it's a staggering ten years since Defence started the programme to replace these ships. It's officially known as MARS, what acronym, Military Afloat Reach and Sustainability. It's all about replenishing the fleet at sea far away from home in order that they could keep fighting. Like anything defence in recent times, though, they were originally looking to buy several more ships. They've now, though, settled on these four that have been announced. A competition was obviously run, but BAE Systems, for instance, obviously, they said that they pulled out when it became obvious the government wanted a cheaper ship, a derivative of a commercially available tanker. Several bidders were left in the running, all of them foreign, and Daewoo is the winner. What kind of reaction has there been? Well, as you might imagine, the unions are pretty unimpressed. The GMB's general secretary has spoken of his anger, insisting that government could have put together a consortium to build the ships here if it had chosen to. BAE, as I say, insists that they had to pull out. The Shadow Defence Secretary Jim Murphy, he's chipped in. He said this is more bad news for British industry. First, we lose out to France over those fast jets, and now we lose out to South Korea over the Royal Navy's own tankers. And when do we find out more about the government's wider defence procurement plans? Well, an announcement is due in the coming weeks about how the MOD is going to spend its £150 billion equipment budget in the coming decade. Defence Equipment Minister Peter Luff was out and about earlier this week, actually, meeting with industry figures at the International Armoured Vehicles Trade Fair. Now, this was before the tanker announcement, I must say, and he was 
making a play of his support to British niche manufacturing. As per his procurement white paper, he made a lot of the need to buy off the shelf, but he stressed that British industry could still have a role in finessing new kit. I put it to him that while the British forces in Afghanistan are uniquely well-equipped at the moment, we don't yet know what's going to happen to the urgent operational requirements that they're wearing and fighting with when that conflict comes to an end. Uh, well, you're right. The UR process has been very successful, uh, and we've seen vehicles procured around the world, then modified, adapted here in the UK, integrated, and, and made to really effective bits of kit, which I know the troops really appreciate. The decisions are now being taken what we do with that as we wind down at the end of the, the combat phase operations, exactly when it comes, what, which comes back into core, what we do with it. Decisions are not being taken yet. It's a difficult piece of work. I can't commit today. I'd like to. So I'd like to know the answer myself. We'll know the answer pretty soon because, we, because that's, that, that's over 2,000 vehicles, nearly £3 billion of expenditure. We must make sure we have good use of those vehicles. And a lot of them are very popular, very successful with the guys. So we need, to, we need to make sure we do use them effectively. You mentioned the money there, and obviously bringing them into core would have its own cost implications in terms of maintaining them for perhaps another 10 or 20 years. But isn't there also a cost implication about uh, paying for them as they weren't procured as part of the uh, department's uh, overall procurement process? Well, there are always complex negotiations with the Treasury over all these issues. Uh, what's core and what's non-core, and recuperation after, after conflict. Uh, but we now, we're getting an increasingly good relationship with Treasury. The Treasury, I think, feels that we're actually no longer the basket case we once were in the department, uh, that we're getting our relationship with them on much better footing. They're actually think we're dealing with the fundamental problems, which should give us more benefit of the doubt when those difficult negotiations begin. The taxpayer has to be protected as well as MOD. It's very important. Treasury has a job to do that. But I think we can get that balance. Perhaps we're not the better place these days. I'm optimistic we'll reach a, a, a sensible solution for both sides. Procurement Minister Peter Love talking there to BFPS reporter Will Inglis. Christopher, RFA all tankers being built in Korea. What do you make of that? Well, if I'm working on the Clyde, I probably would get upset about it. But if I was a, <laughs> let me say, if, if I were commanding a frigate in the South Atlantic and I needed a RAS, and this ship came alongside to, to uh, an oiler came alongside, I couldn't care a toss whether it's built in, in, in Korea or Waikikikau or on the Clyde. I just want to fuel up from it, and that's it. There's more to come, though. It's very likely that people are thinking now we may have to buy the Raphael aircraft from France if we're going to get the aircraft carriers running because the Americans are going bananas and the chance of being able to afford their aircraft is getting slimmer. But we go foreign now. That's the way of the defence equipment. As long as, I can, as long as I can drive it and fight it, that's all I'm interested in. But in a couple of words, what does that mean for the British defence industry, though? Uh, for the Clyde, it could mean quite a lot. Holland and Wolf, it could mean quite a lot. But that is the way we have gone in this real world. Well, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests and, of course, Christopher Lee. If you'd like to join the discussion on any of the stories that we talked about today, then you can follow us on Twitter at hashtag BFBSSITREP. We're pleased to know that Kate's going to be back here at the same time next week. So have a good week, and uh, don't forget to join us at the same time next week here on BFBS. From Meekle Mansell, goodbye. 